Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to invite you to open in your copy of God's Word to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah, chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 10. Finishing Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah, chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. Well, what comes to our mind when we hear the word grace? We've been walking through this book, and I've told you it's a book that really highlights the grace of God as he works with this heathen city and this wayward prophet Jonah. I think when we think of that word grace, we think of love and freedom. We think of just the joy that comes with being forgiven for sin. It's a really positive kind of word. When we hear grace, our natural inclination to say, yeah, I want, I want more of that. But what about the word repentance? When we hear the word repentance, what often comes to our minds seems to be a bit different. Repentance can be embarrassing. It can make me, it, it, it starts with these feelings of sorrow and shame. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. I have to admit that I'm wrong in order to repent. And so I think sometimes we think of grace and we can kind of think it's this really positive category and repentance is kind of this negative thing and we see them as being disconnected. But what we want to see this morning is that one of the ways that God shows us grace in this life is he gives us the ability to repent. Repentance, though an unpleasant path, is a necessary path to joy in Christ. It doesn't always feel good, and it is often awkward, and it is often embarrassing. But if we refuse to take that path of repentance, we will miss out on the joy that only Christ can bring. See, the, we want to see that repentance is a gift of God and is a work of his grace in our lives. That's my hope this morning as we look to this passage and we see a clear picture of what genuine repentance looks like. So with that, let's read from Jonah, chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, 
covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I think as we look at this passage this morning, we work through it, we will see that it is a picture of genuine repentance. And what we want to see as we take it each kind of verse at a time are different aspects. If I can just turn it every which way a little bit, what does genuine repentance look like in the life of the Christian? First, we will see that genuine, genuine repentance, it mourns sin. Genuine repentance mourns sin. It says the word, so if we can remember back from last week, Jonah finally listens to God and he goes to Nineveh and he begins to call out yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And he calls out this message of God's judgment against this evil people. And as he does that, the people hear that word, and they respond in fasting, and they put on sackcloth, and, which, is, which is a way to, to remove, discom- or remove comfort and put on discomfort. They are humbling themselves before God. And this king, when the word reaches his ear, we're given this kind of, it's almost poetic in the way that it's given to us, his actions. He rises, and on the bookend of it all, and then he sits. He has these opposite, opposite actions back and forth. He removes his robe and covers himself. And so you have these verbs that are showing us that he rises up, then he takes something off, then he covers himself, and then he sits back down. And all the while, as he is doing this, he's, he's not making any excuses He's not justifying his sin. He's saying, wait, 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 we didn't know, or we're not people of Israel, or this is the way we do stuff, this evil, violent thing. He didn't do what we often do when confronted with our sin. No, he, he mourns to remove himself from his own throne, to remove his luxurious kingly robe, sign of mourning and grief put on an uncomfortable sackcloth. It's going to sit himself in ashes as king. It's humbling. He's mourning. This is the kind of thing you do when people die. You mourn them. He hears the word of the Lord and his response to his sin and his violence is to humble himself before God. This pagan king looks like what James calls Christians to look like in James chapter four, verses six through sin. James encourages us first and he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Not a typical passage. We like to talk about Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) Weep and mourn over your sin. This king shows us what that looks like. And I think oftentimes I look in my life and I'm willing to bet in your life, instead of getting humble when confronted about our sin, what we do is we puff ourselves up. We justify what we're doing by claiming it's not that bad or comparing ourselves to somebody else. We coerce our way to make people not question our acts or our motives. If we're, we're able to kind of force our way in to keep people away or we make excuses. Or maybe we just hide. We hide ourselves and we hide our sin. And instead of letting it go, mourning it, we cling to sin and we keep it close to us. Why is that? Why are we not like this pagan king who throws himself into the ashes when he hears the word of God? Well, if we're honest... I believe it's because we still hold a fondness for our sin. Sadly, often, even in the Christian life, we fall for the lie that somehow sin will bring us more gratification and joy than Christ will. And so we justify and bully our way to keep our way. We make excuses or we just hide in secret all the while because we don't want to give up our sin. We have a fondness for it. In J.R. Tolkien's uh, series, book series, The Lord of the Rings, if you've seen the movies, you'll know this character, Gollum or Schmeagol, and he's, he's absolutely disgusting to look at. Every time he comes up in life, Brittany's like, oh, turn it, turn it, turn it, turn it, turn it. She can't, she can't, she can't stand him. And if you know the lore of the story, I won't get too far into it, but he wasn't always like that. He once was kind of human-like. I know, every nerd's in the room, I get it. He wasn't a human, I know that. But, but he was human-like. He wasn't horrible to look at. He walked on upright on two legs, but when we meet him, at first, he's this terrifying creature with this creepy little voice. You can ask Ben later to do an impersonation for you, but, but he does that, and, it's, and he crawls, and he's, and he's brought himself low. And I think what Tolkien, the, the author, who's a Christian, is, is trying to show us is the reality that Sin manifests itself in this creature, in this fiction. But what's so interesting about him is the reality is, is he's fallen in love with this golden ring. It's this ring of power, and that's what the whole story is about, the Lord of Rings, but he's fallen in love with it. And when you watch the movie or you read the books, what he'll do is he'll physically like hold it close to him if he gets his hand on it. He'll pursue it at all costs just to be close to it. When he does get his hands on it, he admires it and looks at it. He, he almost even caresses it at times. And he says the very famous line that we all know that Gollum says, my precious. And he calls this thing, which has been his demise, his precious. And I believe that we look at this creature that is fictional if we're honest, we can see ourselves. Sin creeps its way into our lives. Instead of mourning it, 
and hating it and having a disdain and a, and a distaste for the sinfulness that we have fallen into. Instead, so often and so sadly, we hide it and we justify and we keep it as close as we can to us. We have these idols that God reveals and we just want to hold on to them any way that we can. We caress them, we coddle them, we protect them, and we fight if anyone tries to get near them. And while you may not say it, in your heart, you can behave as if that idol has become your precious. And that keeps us from being like this king. Anger starts to feel good. You feel good when you're mad because you're getting justice. Lust, it just becomes normal. It's really not that bad. Everyone else does it. It's not a big deal. Self-righteousness becomes an integral part of your identity. It's woven its way into you that you can't even see that you find your righteousness in yourself rather than in Christ. We battle sin because we don't want to admit the hard reality that we still have a sinful fondness for it. What I want to invite you to do this morning is to mourn your sin, to grieve it, to take heed of this violent, evil king, to hear the word of the Lord and humble yourself. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to joy, your mourning and joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you. Before I go any further in the sermon, I want us to do something we don't typically do, and we're going to just hit pause for one second, and we're going to pray. I'm just going to pray for us very, very briefly. But I'm going to pray Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Pray with me this verse. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, this morning, search our hearts and show us the things we need to grieve. But also, God, through the rest of the sermon, through the rest of this day, lead us into the way that is everlasting. Amen. See, a godly sorrow leads us to genuine repentance. And that's what brings lasting change into our lives. See, genuine repentance, looking at verses 7 and 8, it brings about change. Talking about this king, it says, and he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything and let not them not feed or drink water. He's making official what has already been happening. If we remember from last week in, in verse 5 of chapter 3, when the people heard the word of the Lord, when they heard Jonah's message, they were already doing this. They were already fasting and they were 
they put on sackcloth and they did these things. And so then how the story unfolds to us is that the word then reaches the king and he makes this official decree. And in it, we see his desperation, his reliance upon this God that he's hearing about. He's so much so that he even commands animals to not eat or drink. I don't know that they were the ones being violent and sinful, but for whatever reason, they don't get to eat or drink. And he even does something that's kind of strange with those animals, and he commands them to wear clothes. I know in our world, maybe that's not that strange because people put clothes on their animals all the time, but, but that's weird. But they do that, and it's this reality, and it's showing us he's desperate. He's, he's desperate to see mercy from God. And it produces actual and meaningful change in their life. It has real action to it. It's actually tangible. Verse 8, it says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He calls that they actually change. We shared this at the beginning of our series, but I'll remind you that Assyria, the place, the country that Nineveh is located in, was known for being just incredibly, incredibly violent. They would remove the lips of people that they would torture. And it was just this terrible kind of thing. And it seems like violence is, is clearly mentioned here in the text, and we don't know exactly what that meant, but they were this violent people and their evil had come up before the Lord, as we learn in Jonah chapter 1. And that's why God has sent Jonah to preach to these people. And now this king is saying, we need to turn away from that. We need to turn away from our evil. And that's what repentance really is. Repentance is the turning away from doing the things that dishonor God and turning toward the things that do honor him. He's calling them to change. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 Paul tells us, for godly grief, talking about that mourning of sin, it produces a repentance or a turning that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, when we call you to repent and mourn of sin, we're not calling you to a life of desperation and despair where you always feel terrible. It's not a woe-is-me kind of grief. It's a kind of grief that produces change and repentance. It mourns those things and it learns to hate them, but it is replaced with a love for the things of God. Now the reality is, being told change, your repentance is really genuine if you're different, is way easier said than done. But it is the mark of genuine repentance. If change doesn't happen, if we continue to live in sin, repentance did not happen, even if we claim that it did. Listen to the word of God in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he can not keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So how do we change? This verse lays it on thick, or I should say the passage I don't know anybody who can read this and not feel the sting of, of just the reality. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Because my life doesn't always look very righteous. I still struggle with my sin, the flesh, and the devil. How do we change? But we mourn our sin. We allow godly grief to have its way and lead us to repentance, but a repentance that depends on God. See, when he tells these people to fast and to mourn, he doesn't just tell them that. He tells them to cry out mightily to God. Repentance is a gift. Repentance is a work of grace. We cannot do this without the help of God. You cannot just fix yourself. You must cast yourself on the Lord. You must cry out mightily to God for his help. You need him. The reality is, as we read passages like 1 John 3, and we ask the question, I know I have many times in my life, am I even a Christian? And the answer, I think, in a lot of well-meaning Christians, and I think it's well-meaning, is to really quickly try to resolve that issue in the life of the person doubting. Well, he doesn't mean just sin in general. He just means habitual sin. So as long as you don't like, have habitual sin, then you're good and you're in the clear, which is, which is hard because it sounds good, but it's kind of like making you right before God still based off your own works and what you're doing. Like, as long as you're just not sinning enough, like there's this line but the reality is, is, is this is what God's word is calling us to. I want to encourage you this morning, just maybe just for a second, if that shred of doubt has come into your mind, am I even really a Christian? I'm really struggling with this. That you would be careful to not push it away too quickly. Here's all I mean by this. Is that when we read this, what is it that is bringing that doubt into your mind? And perhaps the Lord is using that to call you to repentance. If there is sin in your life and that starts to come to your mind when you read a hard passage like this, I want to tell you that's grace. That is God's grace in your life. 
He is showing you what he is still working out in you. He is still, you're in this process of change with him and you're gonna continue on in that process until you stand before him glorified. But until that day, we are still fighting sin and God utilizes things like this and he brings that to mind, not so you can just shove it down or think, oh, I'm all good, I don't need to do anything about that but that it might be brought to light so that you might grow and change in his image. Be look more like Christ. You see, the question isn't so much about what should I do? That's not John's answer. The question is, who am I? Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? I read this and there are things that come to my mind as well in my own life. And the answer to, am I a Christian? Is my repentance genuine? Will it bring change? Will be, well, what will you do now? Sunday morning, December 4th. Will you grieve your sin? Will you cry out mightily to God? Will you take that next step of obedience and act in dependence upon God? Will you risk embarrassment? And tell a friend, make that apology that you need to make. Will you go to your community group and share? This is my struggle. I need you to pray for me. Will you seek out pastoral help? Would you be willing to walk through a time of discipleship and counseling that is focused on that issue? Will you seek accountability and not accountability where you both show up and say, did you mess up this week? Yeah. Did you mess up this week? Yeah. Well, we both did. Oh, okay, see you next week. But accountability that has real teeth and real action. Accountability that's going to look you across the table and say, you can change. You can be different. How can I help you? How can I help you, brother? How can I help you, sister? We're walking together. And next week, what's it going to take that we don't repeat this conversation? And I'm here and I'm with you and I want to see it through with you. Now, obviously, there is wisdom in these kinds of things. There are issues that we should talk about with people of the same gender as us because of obvious, helpful realities. There are issues that aren't for the whole world to hear. There is definite truth to that. If your problem is with your spouse, don't share that with your community group. Your spouse, it won't help the marriage, I promise. (laughs) But will you seek help? Will you take that next step? That's what I believe the call is. If a pagan city and a pagan king can hear the word of the Lord, grieve their sin, and cry out mightily to God, and turn from their evil way, oh, dear Christian, so can you. You can do the same. See, the Christian will do these things even though they're hard because they know that eventually genuine forgiveness will always come from God. But we know that we don't have the right to demand that kind of grace. Looking just at verse 9, it says this, Who knows? 
God may return and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now the reality is, is this king who is, does not have the word of God in him, he hasn't been sown into him, he's just heard this message from Jonah, he does not know the nature of God. Not like you do as a Christian. Not like I think most of us as, who attend here do. Then we know that God is like what Jonah says that he's like in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We'll save that for next week. But Jonah knows who God is. Jonah knows that if if you repent, that God is going to forgive you. But this king, he doesn't. He doesn't know that. He says, I don't know, maybe it'll work out for us. But he still does it. He still mourns his sin. He still, is repent. he still does repent. And while he's wrong in his questioning of, will God forgive me, perhaps there's just something to glean from his ignorance. See, my question that I want to ask you is, do you repent because it's wrong and your sin has grieved God, or do you repent because you want to avoid consequences? Genuine repentance doesn't demand grace. Now, in this passage, they're repenting first and before God, and God will forgive, and we'll get there in a moment. But if I can just take a second and apply this to other places in your life, God will always forgive you. People might not. And sometimes what we can do in the course of repentance is I can walk through the motions, the other person doesn't reciprocate in forgiveness, and we can demand some grace. What's wrong? I I did the thing. You're supposed to forgive me now. And what I would say is the genuinely repentant does not demand grace from the offended party. The genuinely repentant knows. They're not like a child who's just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, to avoid the consequence of their sin. But the mature and the genuinely repentant know that real repentance in this world doesn't always receive grace like it ought. But even real repentance before God is not to be abused by God. Ah, sinned again. So I'll just go, walk through the motions, now we're all good. So we don't want to abuse the grace of God, but rather we want to utilize the grace of God and use it to change us. Author Jerry Bridges says this, and if you've never read a Jerry Bridges book, you should. They're awesome. He's great. He says, The solution to staying at the right side of the fine line between using and abusing grace is repentance. The road to repentance is godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is developed when we focus on the true nature of sin as an offense against God rather than something that makes us feel guilty. The way we don't demand grace is we keep God at the center. Genuine repentance sees that the real problem with sin is that we have offended a holy God and we have grieved him. We mourn sin because it grieves God, not because of the bad consequences it has produced in our lives. But what good and glorious news we have in the gospel that while that is true, genuine repentance does always lead to the forgiveness of sinners by a holy and kind God. And I close with this point this morning. Genuine repentance does lead to forgiveness. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
God sees their repentance and he relents. He sees that they have turned from their evil way and he shows mercy. Now, we can read this and we can see that God relented and some translations will even say God repented of that word. I'm not going to pretend that I know enough about the literal languages there to tell you which one is better. But I want to say this. We can see, is God changing his mind? And I would say, I don't believe so. God is acting consistently within his character. What Jonah quotes has been told to us over and over and over again in the Old Testament, that God is gracious and merciful. He is kind and he is slow to anger. In Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8, God says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck them up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. See, God is acting in consistency with his nature because God does not change. If you're looking for a churchy word, I want to give you one. God is immutable. It means he does not change. His character is always consistent. He is to the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. He is acting consistently with who he has always been from eternity past and who he will always be into eternity future. God is gracious and kind, and he forgives sinners who repent. He is not fickle like a human being who maybe only forgives based off of their feelings. He is immutable. He is unchanging. Now you can ask, what does that have to do with anything this morning? And I would say it has everything to do with this morning. Because if God forgives Nineveh thousands of years ago, and he does not change, that means God today forgives sinners like you and like me. And that's a guarantee his unchanging character and his steadfastness throughout the ages to be compassionate and kind, slow to anger, is good news for sinners like me and you. Because that means today he is still compassionate and kind and slow to anger. He forgave them then He will forgive you now. You can rest in the full assurance that God forgives sinners. That you have been stirred this morning to godly sorrow for sin. That that is for your good. And God is going to utilize that, that you might mourn sin and weep and let your laughter be turned to sorrow, that you might humble yourself so that he might exalt you. That you wouldn't be demanding of grace, but that you would stand before God ready to trust him for whatever consequence your sin might bring in this life, knowing that eternity is sealed And that in Christ, you will be forgiven and free. And that even now, today, you can start to live in such a way that you do, in fact, change. There is hope for sinners. Hope for sinners today. You are not doomed to continue on in the cycle. 
take heart, dear brother and sister. God loves you more than you'll ever know. And he'll see you through to the end. He will change you. He has promised to do that. I'm going to invite Kendall and Sarah back, or Kim, back to the stage. What we're going to do this morning, again, is just a little bit different. When we first begin the song after the sermon today, we're actually going to remain seated. It's a new song to us, and it has some lyrics that apply directly to what we just talked about. It encourages you to come, all you unfaithful. And I want you just to take these first two verses in chorus to learn the melody to listen to the lyrics and to bring your heart to God who bids you come even though you still sin. And that we might sing and remember at this time of year that Christ was born to die for sin. So with that, I'm going to read 1 John 1.9. They're going to sing. We're going to just listen And then after that, Kendall will invite us all to stand and we'll sing those verses again so we'll know what we're doing. But for now, may you reflect on this truth. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.